The scripture reading for this morning comes from selected passages from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Verse 10. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is God's word. Last week, we just started a new series, and um, it starts, the series is on the Gospel of John. John is pretty much Jesus Christ's best friend, and uh, this season, we're really looking at his account, his explanation of who Jesus is, the Gospel according to John, and it really answers the question who Jesus Christ is, because really, that's the central question in all of history that we should be asking who is Jesus Christ? And it really should be the central question in our lives, day by day. And so today we're going to focus on three aspects of really the most pregnant part of this text, which is verse 14. The Word became flesh, made His dwelling upon us. We have seen His glory, who uh, came from the Father, full of grace and truth. There are three points today. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. First, the Word. Jesus Christ is the Word. What does that mean? And it means this. Your Word is the clearest revelation of who you are. Think about it. When you go on a date, or before you go on a date, um, when you first encounter someone that you find interesting, you want to get to know that person, what do you do? What do you do? You study them deeply, first on the outside. That's what kind of draws you in. You study them. You don't even realize you're studying them, and you're studying them. You're inquiring about them. You're, t you're taking guesses based on impressions that you've made about a person. You make assumptions about this person, good and bad. What are their interests? What are, their, what are they attracted to? What would really get this person? In other words, you can learn a lot about somebody just by looking at your impression of that person. But in the end, what do you end up doing? Because there are lots of gaps. There are things that are unclear and you have to understand. You have to know and you want to know. So what do you do? You tell somebody who's close to that person first, you know, whether you're in seventh grade or whether you're, you know, working, you're a professional. You tell somebody who's close to that person and you start to inquire about them. What is this person like? And nothing, even though you're able to do that, you learn a lot about this person nothing ever beats going up to that person, meeting them, and asking them directly, encountering them in a deep way. You can learn a lot about somebody by studying them. You can learn a lot about somebody by reading about them, a celebrity or a scholar, their works, but nothing beats walking up with them, sitting down and having coffee and having a good, real conversation. Nothing beats that. There's nothing like their word. There's nothing like their word. And here the author is saying that Jesus is the word of God. 
Verses 1 to 5, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing has been made that has been made. In him was life, and that light, life is the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Well, how's the darkness going to understand it? We're going to inquire. We're going to encounter Jesus. Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is light that brings light to men. It means that you can learn all sorts of stuff about God, but to really know God, to really understand God, you have to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And you can. That's what John's really saying. The whole point of this passage is John saying it's possible. You can know him very personally. You can know him in a deeply real and personal way. God has punched a hole through the roof of history. And he looked down and he said it is broken and it is stale and it's old and it's decaying. And I'm going to go in there and I'm going to rescue the world. That's what he said. He's going to become a rational human being. The word logos, that's the Greek word, means rationale. God didn't just give us a teaching. He became a rational human being that you can encounter because there's no way, there's no better way to know God than to encounter him personally. Eastern religions say that you can't know God personally, that God is not and he cannot be personal. God is a force. God is a power. Western religions say God can be a person but he's holy. He's too holy, which is why when we walk into church, we're guilty. We put our heads down. You could, and, and as a result, he's not that personal. You've got to be a little standoffish with him. Christianity blows away all Eastern and Western thought when it comes to thinking about Jesus, when it comes to thinking about God. Because at the heart of Christianity, God is on one hand holy, but on the other hand, deeply personal. He deeply, he just punched a roll, a hole into the roof of our lives and he came in. And he didn't just come in as a force or a teaching or a lesson or as a leader that we follow. He came in and became a person and became a wonderful counselor. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, it's in our uh, word of encouragement. Wonderful counselor. He understands. It's an amazing thing, an amazing reality. In fact, he became so personal, he became a baby. He didn't start out as a king. He became a baby. And that means that somebody like Mary, who's poor, who's illiterate, who's marginalized from society, can hold him. That means you can hold him. That means anybody can hold him. He became so personal. And that means that this infinitely powerful God and king became fragile and personal and vulnerable so that we can know him personally, so that we can touch him. That's how he started out in this world. This passage is really telling us that God has spoken his word, spoken rationally. The word means logos, but he spoke rationally through the rational human being of Christ. It's where we get the word logic, but really it's where we get the concept of meaning. What John is saying is that Jesus Christ is the meaning of life. If you want light in your life, it's because we're dark, and when the room is dark, you can't see, and so everyone's kind of reaching for their own way to get out. John is saying that Jesus Christ is that light that rescues us because light brings clarity, rationale, thought, not just thought, but a thought that leads to life. That's what, Jesus, that's what John is saying here. God didn't just give you an argument for the gospel. God didn't just give you an argument that he exists. That God does, we, don't sit, we don't stand here. You'll never hear up at the pulpit, at least in this pulpit, us trying, just trying to prove to you in some rational way that God exists. 
because that's not going to shape you. You know what shapes us? Relationship shapes us. Think about the most impactful lessons that you've ever learned and try to separate that from the most important people in your life. They've always been around. That's how it happens. So rationale, the rationale of life is a person. God didn't just give us an argument. He didn't just give us a teaching. So, you know, once and for all, this is what you need to know. By the way, all other religions do do that. This is a teaching. Once and for all, this is what you need to know. God gave us something that's better than just a watertight argument. He gave us a person. And that means you can ask this person. That means you can complain to this person. We complain to a lot of other people. We don't complain to our Father and our God. That means we can argue with this person. We like to argue with lots of other people. We like to fight with lots of other people, but we don't argue with God. We don't let God argue with us. Nothing shapes us like relationship. It's better than any teacher. You ever read that book, Tuesdays with Maury? Tuesdays with Maury, written by a student who actually came out of my alma mater. And it wasn't this professor, this great esteemed professor who was around since the founding of our school. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't this rationale of the professor that really so moved him. It wasn't the teachings. He was a great professor. It wasn't his teaching that got him. It was a relationship. And it was the relationship of someone who was so esteemed and so well-respected and so well-known and so well-beloved who actually befriended a sophomore, a senior, a junior, a freshman in college. That's what it was. That's what shaped him. It wasn't the classroom that shaped the author of Tuesdays with Maury. It was the relationship. It's not less than rationale. Christianity is not less than rationale. You can't leave your mind at the door, but it's infinitely more than just a rationale. Jesus Christ as a person, his claims, his history, the accounts, the teachings, particularly his character, his work, what he's done. You have to look at it. You have to examine it. You have to observe it. You have to observe it with a critical eye. You have to get to know him. You have to understand him. You have to encounter him over and over and over. You have to reason with him. You have to argue with him. You have to sometimes complain to him. You have to hear from him. You have to absorb him. You have to truly take in. You have to get rid of assumptions. The point is, it's all a process. It's a, you know, it, it might happen in a petcax getting to know him. But really knowing him is a process. And the more you take on that process, you find that there is no watertight argument. It's not so much a watertight argument. The watertight argument is a person. It is the relationship. And it's inexplicable from the outside in. You can't explain it from the outside in. So the first point is Jesus Christ is the word of God. He is God's word, the clearest revelation of who God is. Now, the second point is that word became flesh. Jesus Christ being the ultimate revelation of who God is. If you read Hebrews chapter 1, it says that he is the exact representation of God, the radiance, the radiance of the Shekinah glory presence of God. Those Israelites that came out of Egypt, we all know the story, Prince of Egypt, the Israelites cross over the Red Sea. What did they follow? They followed this great glory cloud, cloud this great radiant cloud, this fire. What the author of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus Christ is that radiant fire of God, the exact representation of God. Divine, divinity became humanity, which means he became killable, vulnerable, weak. God came down. The technical term is he condescended on man. Why is that important to us? In Psychology 101, I actually took Psychology 101, there's a term that we learn called the diffusion of responsibility. 
What does that mean? Someone tries to mug you in a dark alley. You're walking through uh, a certain section in Philadelphia, and you find that somebody's following you, and then he mugs you in this dark alley. What do you do? The moment he gets you, there's this terror and this horror, and you start to cry out for help. And it being a close city, a lot of people per square inch, you, all these lights come on, a lot of people open up their windows, pull up their shades, and they look out, and they see, they literally see you getting hurt. They literally see you getting damaged. But the fusion of responsibility in psychology 101, college students, freshmen, if you, freshmen, if you know, you've, you've either learned it, you're going to learn this, right? The lights stay on, but the shades start to go down again. The windows start to close. Sometimes the lights go off, and nobody does anything. It's this phenomenon, this social phenomenon that takes place because each person assumes somebody else is more fit to rescue, somebody else is more fit to even make the call. Why doesn't anybody come down? If you're on a high rise and you hear this person screaming, why doesn't anybody come down? And you know why? Because to come down is to absorb risk. You see the terror, now you're going to be a part of the terror. You see the tragedy, now you're going to be a part of the tragedy. You don't want to be a part of the tragedy. You don't want to take that risk. You don't want to absorb that violence. You don't want to be a part of the tragedy. You don't want to be a part of the death. You don't want to be in the news. Not like that. Nobody wants to be in the news like that. The text says when Jesus Christ heard those cries, he came down. And when he came down, it wasn't at the risk of terror and violence and tragedy and death but at the cost of terror and violence and tragedy and death. It was his own life. If it's true that God became flesh, it means because he came down, because he became flesh, he understands. It means he knew the risk. He knew the cost of bringing love, real love in our lives. You ever see Titanic? Towards the end of Titanic, I don't have to spoil the ending, right? I mean, come on, it's Titanic, right? So I can tell you, the ship goes down, right? We all understand that, right? In Titanic, the ship goes down, right? And uh, you have Jack, this fictional character, and um, Rose, the fictional character, I assume fictional character. And uh, they're in the water, and it's freezing, right? And they say roughly every person in real life who actually went overboard in the Titanic roughly passed away within 12 minutes, 12 to 15 minutes. It was icy water. And uh, Jack pulls up this furniture bed, you know, uh, headboard, kind of puts it upright, it's floating, driftwood, and he puts Rose on it, right? And he's trying to get on it. But then he realizes it can't fit both of them. So he has that look on his face, and he kind of resolves, and then he stays down, right? And he says, I'm never going to leave you. And when he goes down, he goes way down. Right? You actually see the figure of Jack Dawson in the water. When Jesus Christ came down, God in eternity, architecting this great plan of redemption, knew that his own son would have to be a part of going down. And Jesus Christ didn't sit there and go, fine, that's not what Jesus did. He looked at it, And he gave that resolute look. And he said, I'll go. I got to go. I'll go down. Lots of poems about that. Read poems from George Herbert. Lots of good poems about that. It means he knew the risk. He knew the cost. And, And 
knowing the cost, knowing the suffering, knowing the humiliation he's going to endure, he said, I'll go. Wonderful counselor. If you understand risk in your life, if you understand tragedy in your life, if you understand sin going down in your life, Jesus understands. He's been where we've been. Why does Isaiah call him the wonderful counselor? Why? Because the best counselors are people who've been through something, who understand what it's like to be broken by something, and they've come out on the other end, and they've revived, and they've healed, and they are the best to lead you through that tunnel of darkness as light because they've been through the very same struggles that you've been through. And this text is saying that the God of the universe has been on the operating table. The God of the universe has been in the emergency room. One of the biggest complaints of the medical industry is what? My doctor doesn't seem to get it. He's crass, and he's cold, and he's heartless, and I have cancer. He doesn't get it. And there's lots of reasons why. We can't be too hard on our doctors. There's lots of legalities. The very slight you know, thing that they say, it's made them cold. It's a very cold industry. But really, they don't know how difficult it is. No matter how many patients they've seen, until they themselves are on the table, they will never know what it's like to be on the table. This text is telling us when the word became flesh and he emptied himself of his divinity, emptied himself, not necessarily of his divinity, he was divine, but of all his power that comes with divinity, of all of his, uh, the wealth and the richness of being divine. He emptied all of that. And actually he did empty himself of his divinity because he became sin. His bedside manner is perfect because he is the ultimate healer. He's been in the operating room. He's suffered the grief. He's suffered the rejection. He's suffered the betrayal. He's suffered injustice. He's suffered torture. He's suffered pain. He's suffered loss. He's been betrayed. So as your best friend, right, he understands. If you're broke financially, he's been broke. The birds of the air have nests but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. He, Jesus Christ was homeless. He's been there. You, think you, don't have, you don't think you have finances? Jesus Christ was stripped naked and placed on the cross. Lonely. If you're lonely, lonely. He died alone. He died alone. Even the criminals rejected him. He died forsaken even by his own father. You can go to him with anything that you have, with whoever you are. Now, a lot of us, there's some of us in this room who can say, well, I've been praying to Jesus. I've been praying to God, but he abandoned me. He never answered me. You know what? Jesus Christ experienced that too, being abandoned, not having his prayers answered. In Gethsemane, he said, Father, please take this cup from me. But he was turned down. The cup that he was talking about was his wrath, God's wrath. He said, Father, will you take this cup from me? Not my will, but yours be done. And he was turned down. On the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was abandoned. He was rejected. He was turned down. And so because Jesus Christ experienced everything, you can go to him with anything. Do you trust him? Do you trust that? So we have the word. The word became flesh. He came down, suffered, understands. Lastly, 
he made his dwelling among us so that we can see his glory. You know, John could have used any other word to teach us that Jesus resided with us. He could have said, you know what, he came down and he hung out. Well, he wouldn't say that. He would say he came down and he lived with us. But that's actually not what he uses. The word he used when he says that he dwelled among us, the actual word that he chose is a Greek word for tabernacle. Jesus Christ tabernacled among us so that we can behold his glory. Now, I want to set the stage for you. You know what a tabernacle is? It was a precursor to the temple. God had given specific instructions for this precursor to the temple to be built because God wants to be with his people. Because of their sin, he was holy. He had to be veiled. And so he said, I want you to build this shelter for me. And in this shelter, I will dwell with you. I will literally come down and be with you. But he is fire. He is holy. You ever been to campfire? You need a little shelter. You need a little campfire site. If you get too close, you're going to get burned. And so God said, I'm going to build you a site. I want you to build it exactly to these dimensions, exactly to these specifications, exactly with this type of curtain and veil. This veil will be put up. A holy curtain will be put up. And nothing will be able to get through that curtain. There I will reside with you. One man will come in and serve as a mediator representing all of us. He will enter in and he will represent you. And he will be consecrated, which means he had to be cleansed and he had to go through purification rites and he had to eat certain things so that inside and out there will be full integrity and he will be reading in the word and he will be praying and as he enters in, he can represent us in our best shape and form knowing that we have all the sins steeped up in him and he would eradicate the sins through sacrifice. That's what the tabernacle was, the holy presence of God residing with his people. In 1 Samuel, there's this passage The reason why I say that is because for many people, the further you are away from the tabernacle, God becomes more and more in the periphery of our lives. Now, figuratively, that's how it is. For most of us, during the week, God is in the tabernacle far away, and he's kind of in the periphery of our vision. We like to say that we are gospel-centered. We like to say that we are God-focused. We like to say that we are Christ-focused. But in reality, God is not personal, not in the daily life. He's in the periphery of our lives. Because you know what's in the forefront of our lives? Our work. You know what's in the forefront of our lives? Our relationships. You know what's in the forefront of our lives? Particular, specific relationships. You know what's in the forefront of our lives? Our studies. Getting to know people. Living that life. Getting ahead. Accruing wealth and keeping wealth. That's the battle. Having children and lots of them having good children and perfect children, becoming that perfect person for your children. All those things are in the forefront of our lives. And do you know how many things there are? You'll find that that's just the beginning. When you uncover the layers of those things, there's acceptance and there's deep roots, acceptance, approval, intimacy. All those things are hooked in. And it's like an anchor. These things are hooked in, hooked into the very bedrock of what we believe. These are your core values. And so when these things are hooked in, Those things, God becomes on the periphery. God becomes kind of uh, veiled and in a periphery. There's this passage in 1 Samuel uh, where God literally is in a a periphery. He's in an ark and he's carried out the battle and that ark, basically the Israelites lose the battle. The ark gets captured by their enemies, the Philistines, and now literally God, the presence of God is on the periphery of the nation of Israel. And so it, there's no, it's pre-king, um, pre, right before a king. Samuel, as a judge, is in mourning and all the people are weeping because God has really departed and he's kind of on the periphery. 
And as that's taking place, you have these evil priests, these evil priests, one of which is Phineas. His wife is pregnant and in labor. And as she sees the glory cloud of God lifting up and departing, she's in labor at the same time and giving birth to a child. She names the child Ichabod. Ichabod is the Hebrew word because kavod means glory and e, he puts something in front of it, means no. His name is no glory, which means the glory of God has departed and then she dies. God is on the periphery. She is dead. This child has no glory. That's our lives. That is a picture of the figment of our lives. That all the things that are urgent in our lives are we're fixated on and we're focused on and, and, and God becomes on the periphery. And we know it when? When we suffer. When you suffer, you realize how distant and how far apart you are. Now, what are you going to do? Become religious? You think that's going to solve the problem? Come, becoming religious? Because religion is us trying to access God. But the thing is, if God has gone, if God is distant, if God is veiled, religion won't get you through there. I, w- I could go on and on about religion, um, but I just wanted to make that part po- clear. When Moses is on the mountain, his request is what? I want to see you. I want to be close to you. I want to encounter you. I want to know you. Show me your glory, he says. The glory, the weight, the full weight of who you are. You, ever, you know what the word glory means? You can substitute the word glory for weight. I want to know. I want to see the full beauty of who you are, the full glory of who you are. We use phrases like, you know, when somebody is naked, you know, baby is naked and born, right? You say, he, he appeared in all his glory. That's what he's saying. I want to see in your fullest beauty, the fullest majesty of who you are. That's Moses' prayer, right? God says you can't. You're not going to survive it. If I were to reveal to you the full glory of who I am, you can't survive, which is why you're going to build a tabernacle. And there you're going to have sacrifices, and you're going to have priests. And I'm going to be there. I will be right there with you, Moses. But I'm going to be concealed in this tabernacle, and you're going to be a mediator. We're going to set up a system for people to mediate with me because I want to be with you. I love you. You are my child. You are my sons. You are my daughters. I want to be there. John uses that phrase that Jesus tabernacled among us. The high priest, he would come in, he would serve as the mediator. The tabernacle itself was the house of God, right? The temple, the the temple dwelling place of God. There would be a shield for the glory of God, the veil uh, that's set up to shield the glory of God. And every year, the high priest would go in and he would offer sacrifices, but he had to be prepared, he had to be cleansed, he had to be consecrated, he had to pray. Even what he ate was very, very important because he was entering the place of sacrifice. And it's either going to be the bull or it's going to be him. One of those things is going to be the sacrifice. Lots of work. But when Jesus Christ came, the ultimate prophet, the ultimate high priest, the exact representation of God, the radiance of the glory of God. John is saying here, we behold him. We can see his glory fully, unmediated. We can have his glory. We can take it in full and we will not be consumed. We can touch the fire. We can hold the fire. We can embrace the fire, the presence, and not be broken up. When you touch fire, what happens? Anything that touches fire gets broken up, right? You put a piece of wood in there, blows up, it just gets broken up. You touch a fire, you hold it in, you put it on you, it's going to get broken up. 
Fire is beautiful, but if you put it in your living room, you know it's going to be bad for you, right? That's what happens. John is saying you can take that fire and you can hold it, you can envelop yourself in it, you can embrace knowing God, and you will not, it doesn't have to be mediated. That's an amazing truth. There are two things, there are two reasons why that's amazing. One, it means that Jesus marks the end of religion altogether. Because you are accepted in Christ, you don't have to work. The high priest had to work. There's this passage, we read it in the Apostles' Creed. If you've ever recited the Apostles' Creed, he said, He ascended on the heaven and sits on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. It's because the high priest, he would do all his work, right? He would do all his work in the temple, but he never sits down. Because to sit down, only a king sits down. You know why? Because it is finished. The high priest would never sit down because the work was never finished. Somebody will come to finish the job once and for all. So when it says that Jesus Christ ascended to the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and he sits at the right hand, it means he's finished. The work is done. There's no more working needed. You don't have to work to constantly earn God's favor. What's religion? I work, I serve, I give in order to gain the acceptance of God, God's approval. Here it says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling. Jesus took every step, crossed every bridge, crossed every chasm to make his dwelling among us. That's what it's saying here. That's the end of temples. That's the end of tabernacles. That's the end of sacrifices. That's the end of priests. You know why? Because Jesus Christ is the ultimate temple. That's John chapter 2. Jesus Christ is the ultimate tabernacle. That's John chapter 1. Jesus Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. John chapter 19. Jesus Christ is the ultimate priest. John chapter 17. You're going to see that over and over and over in the book of John. John is going to sit here and tell you that Jesus is the end all and be all of our faith. And that's why you can trust him. You can trust him. That's an amazing thing. The second thing that it teaches us is one, it's the end of religion. Why wasn't Moses able to see the glory, but we can still see the glory? We can still see it. Why is that possible? It's because there's a gap. Moses realized that the gap between God and him is a lot greater than even he imagined. There's a sin gap. Think about, I share this often, but think about this. If you've been wronged in a serious way in your life, if you've been hurt by somebody in a serious way, a gap forms between that person and you. So I'm going to cut to the chase. That gap that forms between that person, if that person just comes and says, I'm sorry, in a very casual way, right, is that enough? Of course, it hurts you more, actually, doesn't it? Because you're like, wow, it's even deeper gap because you don't get it on top of that. You just don't get it. Sometimes getting a person to the point of sorry, right, is a battle, isn't it? You've ever been in an argument with anybody? You understand. Getting the person to a place where you can speak rationally about what apologies are needed. But the thing is, apologies are what happens when you spill milk on someone, right? Oh my gosh, I'm sorry, right? But when they betray you, and is an apology enough? Is it sufficient? It's not enough. And so to cut to the chase, something serious has to happen to close that gap. Something serious has to happen. An apology is not enough. That's why, you know, when that person that hurt you suffers, you actually, let's admit it, you feel better. You say, oh man, but there's a part of you that's like, he deserves it. You know it. You know why? Because that helps in your heart and in your mind to close the gap. It helps. When that person uh, experiences tragedy or loss, 
In our sinful selves, we actually feel a little better as if that person is paying the debt for you. You get what I'm saying? You understand what I'm saying? Directly or indirectly, you feel that justice has been served to some degree. If I take your brand new shiny German car and I just crash it, right, even unintentionally, right, what happens? Is an apology enough? Because the cost is so great. An apology is not enough. Somebody has to pay. Either I have to pay and pay you back, dollar for dollar, part for part, or if you say, you know what, it's cool, I'm going to take care of it, then you have to pay. Or you can say, don't worry, I have insurance, right? We're Asians, we look alike, right? Cops can't tell the difference. I drove that car, but then the insurance company has to pay. Somebody has to pay that price. Why? Now think about it. Because we're made in God's image, because we're made in God's image, any wrongdoing creates a gap. And if that's the case with us, how much more infinitely great is that gap between us and God? That gap that two people experience is similar to the gap between us and God, but that gap between us and God is an infinite gap created by sin. An apology will be insufficient. Your remorse is insufficient. Something has to close the gap. Your suffering is insufficient. It has nothing to do with it, actually. Your suffering, sometimes we suffer consequences of our sin. But your suffering and the closing of the gap, insufficient. God is not petty. He's not like, oh yeah, well, take this. That's not God. Because that's not enough. That would be petty. Even if he were to take away something that was very important to you. A lot of times we think, God is punishing me for my sin. It is not enough. It doesn't come close to filling the gap. God is not punishing you as if that's enough because it's not enough. It's not enough. You have to die. And even that's not enough. This is a God that we've trampled on. This is a God who has infinitely loved his people to punch a hole and come in and rescue, not just through Jesus, but time and time and time and time again. If you look at the Bible from Genesis to the end, what do you think it's a story of? Creation, fall, redemption. Who do you think is the redeemer? God, over and over, serving in some way, provisionally, over the course of time, redeeming his people over and over and over again. A God who infinitely loves us, and yet we've infinitely rejected, run from, hurt, distanced ourselves from, not even thankful for, most of the time not even acknowledging. So you can't just come into God's presence, right? There's a price to pay if you do, and you're going to pay with your life. Therefore, Jesus had to come. He had to come. The glory of God. But he becomes a baby. In the Old Testament, the glory of God was a smoking mountain, a consuming fire, but this transcendent God became a baby who is accessible and safe and warm and intimate. When Jesus Christ was born, the angel said, peace on earth. You know why? Because the war is over. The war between God and man is over and the gap has closed. Jesus came to close that gap. So you don't have to sit there and, and grovel you understand? If you're groveling, you don't understand the grace of God. You come in and say, you know what, Lord, you love me not based on my record, but on the record of Jesus Christ. 
Not based on anything that I've done to come close to you, but based on everything that God, that Jesus Christ has done to, come, to bring me close to you. And so I come, not just because you are loving me, but because you are just. It is your promise, and you've already exacted the justice on Jesus. And therefore, because you are just, you will not punish me again. On your justice, I can come. On your right, I can come. It is a right that you have given me by faith alone. Do you trust that? That's grace. That is an amazing thing. Do you see that? You can behold the glory of God. How do you do that? On the cross. Here's Jesus. Infinitely powerful. Infinitely loving. Infinitely beautiful. Infinitely majestic. Infinitely a king. And yet, on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God's glory has departed from me so that you can behold him. On the cross, Jesus is saying, I've lost the glory. I've lost the presence. I have become no glory. Jesus Christ became the real Ichabod. He became the real Ichavod. Jesus Christ is a true tabernacle, but on the cross, the glory of God departed from him. And as a result, he's saying, I'm empty. I've not only emptied myself, but now I'm a tabernacle, just a mere shell of who you were. You've departed from me, and now I am this empty, cold building. That's what I've become. Why? So that you can behold the beauty of God. Jesus is saying, I've been torn apart, literally ripped apart. And if Jesus Christ was ripped apart, that means God himself was ripped apart. Think about it. If your parents ever lost you, how would they feel? Now think infinitely greater than that. That's God looking at his own son. That's the terror. That's the tragedy. The Trinity being ripped apart, heaven being torn apart. To, to say, I am forsaken is to say, I am suffering the real terror, the real violence, the real tragedy, the real death. That real death is a separation from God. And as a result, Jesus Christ did show up in the news. It was bad news for him, but it became Good Friday for us. Good news. Good news for us. Was that corny? Good news for us. Why? To reconcile us. To re- I know when something sounds corny. To reconcile us. The gap is closed. Do you know that as Jesus was on the cross and as the wrath of God is being poured out on him, the holy temple veil literally was ripped from top to bottom. Very, very specific. Notice it wasn't ripped from bottom to top. You would think, why? Because if it's bottom from top, that means men took it on one end and on the other and tore it in half. But instead, it tore from top to bottom. Why? Because God was literally ripping the curtain at its seams and saying, now you have access through Christ. Do you trust that? No more veil. Access for all. Ripped from top to bottom. We can tear the veil. We can cross the bridge through faith. Now, we're accepted. Emmanuel, his name is what? God with us. No more gap. No more sin gap. If you place your life and you say, I trust that my life is now hidden with Christ on high because it's based on his record, not my record. What he did, not what I've done. That means that's the end of pride. It's the end of religion. It's the end of snobbishness. It's, there's no more judgment. There's no more, I've lived such a better life than you because it doesn't, it's not based on you. That's, it's not, God had to pay because you can't pay. You still have a debt. No matter how much you've paid, your debt is great, too great. It still costs your life. But it's also the end of guilt. 
There's some of us here who have guilt in our souls and we haven't been able to deal with it and it's choking us. That's what guilt does. Some of it's false because you're dealing with gossip. And you, you know, when, you, when you're gossiped about, there's guilt there. Even if you didn't do it, you sense this pressure, right? And it chokes you. People are trying to destroy your reputation so it's as if you committed that sin, even if you didn't. You're down on yourself. It forms a kind of guilt that you can't get rid of. You can't shake. Some of it's real. You have cheated. You have violated trust. You have betrayed. You have violated standards. You have violated the law. But if you look at the infinite God who died for you, look at that. Gaze on that. That's beautiful. That's got to be beautiful. The Bible says Jesus bought the church of God with his blood. It means you can be free. No more guilt. You are free. Look at him. Look at him, the beauty of Christ. God himself who died for you, but he's also a man. He became a man. The very nature of him becoming a man means that he understands. He knows what it's like. Are you gossiped about? He knows what it's like. Are you being just destroyed? Your reputation is being besmirched. He knows what that's like. Untrue, and yet he knows. His reputation was destroyed even in trial. He never saw justice. Jesus Christ knows what it's like to be tempted in every way. He also knows what it's like to become sin. Go to him. Your prayers are heard. Go to him as a counselor. Go to him for access. You want your life to change? Go to him. Most of the time, our lives don't change because we're just trying too hard. Is that ironic? We're just trying too hard. Go to Christ first. Submit yourself to Christ. Love Christ. See the beauty of Christ. By the way, he would only be beautiful for you if you actually see him. So if he's beautiful to you, if it's getting you, if it's moving you, whatever that's paining you, whatever that's ailing you, Jesus can heal it. He suffered it. He paid for it. You will always have hope. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us so that you can see his glory, his beauty. And it's full of grace and truth. Will you trust that? Let's pray.